because by the way, this is a particularly American thing. It has, it is spread around the globe. It's super common in Africa and it's super common in the global South. Like, I mean, charismatic worship is the name of the game in Cuba, but it, it's an American invention, so to speak. And it, and it comes out of a couple different factors. Hey there, Remind listeners. I'm so excited to have you back as we continue our conversation of the Azusa Street Revival. Today, we're focusing on the history and the context and also how worship worked in that environment. So I'm excited for you to listen. Enjoy. So right now, what we've heard is that we've got a man named William Seymour, who yep. is um, a son of a slave yep. and been... Um, he, he was trained by a guy, what's the guy's name? Charles Parham. Charles Parham, and he was trained by him up in Indianapolis, I believe. No, Kansas, close. Kansas, yeah. okay, north, north of where he came from. Yes, he was from Louisiana, so he did move north, good job, yep. Um, so he was he was trained by Charles Parham. Yeah. And he, you know, he got, he got this message of baptism by the Holy Spirit, and the big emphasis on Acts 2, um, kind of in his message when he's yeah. teaching. Uh, eventually, he gets called out to Los Angeles. Yep. To lead a church, to teach that, teach that church, pastor that church. Yeah. And upon getting out there, um, he, you know, he's preaching his message. He's preaching his bread and butter. Yeah. Uh, baptism by the Holy Spirit. They didn't want anything to do with it. They kicked him out. Yeah. And he ended up starting a um, some type of Bible study. Right now, I might be adding in based on my knowledge. A Bible study prayer meeting. Yeah. Bible study prayer meeting that turned into something a little bit bigger. And before, um, before, you know, he knew it, they've got their own building. Yep. Um, that's called the Azusa street revival or the Azusa yep. street mission. Yep. And people are coming, people are experiencing the power of the Holy spirit. People are yeah. getting, uh, they're, they're experiencing that baptism in the Holy I mean, spirit. They're having baptism in the Holy spirit. They're getting physically healed. They're getting emotionally healed. Like, yeah. Yeah, so this is all happening, um, and then the, the time that they have this, the mission was founded was in 1906, right? Yeah. So this is 1906. I mean, there's, I just want to paint this picture. There's like dirt roads. Yep. I mean, there's minimal amount of cars. Like, this is not the Los Angeles we think of nowadays. It grew through Los Angeles, interesting, because they had street cars, and so okay. that's how they kind of spread it through Los Angeles itself. Right. But yeah, I mean, they... And they weren't using radio, they weren't using television, obviously, and they didn't have cars. I mean, so they, it was really organic and people overcoming the limitations of their day to bring that message. I mean, the president at this time would be like Roosevelt, correct? That's a good question. Let's Google that. I don't know. I think it's Roosevelt. So, and I mean, we're on the verge, we'd be on the verge of World War One. Yeah, that's starting to stir up across the globe. Yep. So this is, I mean, I'm just trying to paint this, like, I'm, you know, the history of this is so interesting. So yeah. one of the first questions I had when I was kind of looking into this is, you know, maybe from a skeptical standpoint, I'm like, okay, this is pretty wild. You know, what's interesting about this is, is that there was newspapers to document this. Oh, tons. Yeah. Tons of newspapers. So like, it's, it's undeniable in a sense, but I also wonder... What else was going on? What was the current worldview at that point 
from inside the church, outside the church? Yeah. You know, what kind of like philosophy are we coming into or coming out of from the 1800s that would allow people to kind of, you know, man, we need a revival. We need a revival. And um, the racism, all of that stuff. What, what, What can we say about that? So the history of American Christianity. So let's talk about inside the church and then we'll talk about outside the church or kind of interweave them. The history of American Christianity is ultimately rooted in revival. So America experienced what we call the first great awakening, which was a series of revivals that took place in the 1730s and 1740s. Um, Jonathan Edwards, Solomon Stoddard, George Whitfield are big players in this time. And so that creates and sparks a revivalistic kind of thinking in America. And by the way, they're inheriting from John Wesley's kind of revival in England. Then about a hundred years later, there's what we call the second great awakening, another series of revivals, by the way, my alma mater, Moody Bible Institute, Dwight L. Moody was a player in this one. The second great awakening, 1800 to 1820, it was in decline by 1870, but another series of revivals. So about in American history, about every century, there is a revival, right? There is this, and not just in a local church, but a widespread kind of significant experience. And so there's this itch in American Christianity for revival, for emotionalism and expression and explosive and caught up in a wave of something. And so you have this itch going on all the time. And by the way, I think that itch is even what's present, not only in American Christianity over the last 20 years, but even like across the globe, because it starts to feel like we're a little overdue, depending on how you look at it. So you have that going on inside the church. You have um, outside the church, the world is just rapidly changing. I mean, we're in the middle, we're, we're in the upswing of modernism that is sparked by Darwin's On the Origin of Species, which is published in 1859. Uh, You have industrialization happening across the nation, which leads to significant health concerns, uh, child labor, drunkenness, um, people living in just the most unthinkable living conditions. Again, like mud streets. I mean, no sanitation, tons of sickness and illness. And, and in the background of that too, it's important to understand that 18, like late 1800s, early 1900s, I mean, uh, Teddy Roosevelt is the president uh, and he, you know, the quintessential image of him is like, in my mind, he's like got a cowboy hat and riding a horse. I mean, there's this rugged individualism that is so present in American culture at this time. And so this rugged individualism that's all about my experience. I mean, it's kind of similar to today. Um, Although we have what we would call more of an expressive individualism, but let's not get into that. You have like also just a massive kind of gap between blacks and whites in the wake of the civil war. You have industrialization going on. And so you have Christians in the midst of this culture who have an itch for revival who have this Americanized version of Charles West uh, of the of Charles and John Wesley's Christian perfection? Their idea was that we could reach spiritual kind of perfection in this life, and that's a whole complicated topic. But in America, that kind of became this seeking after an ideal. In American Christianity, there's always been a pessimism that things are just getting worse and worse and worse. 
that is mirrored by utopianism. And by the way, I'm getting this from Ryan Reeves at Gordon Conwell Seminary. So this is not purely my, I'm not that smart, but there's this well, utopianism that, go ahead. I just want to like interject right there. This is like, I mean, <clears throat> for me, the way that I'm thinking is like, you're using the word individualism. I mean, you said modernism, right? Um, like the modern thought. I mean, this is this is these are the things that happen as a result of um, you know our framers. Our framers, I think, would could be argued. The framers of the Constitution would be argued as deists, yeah, not humans. So a deist essentially thinks that there is a God, but he just wound up the clock and then just let it go, right? So it leaves every individual to come up with their own rules and like how to act. There's not going to be any intervention. There's no justice. There's no things like that. So we make up these things. And, and um, that's but, what, that's what led to the social decline, but go ahead. Yeah. 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 And that led to the social decline and everybody is in. So the enlightenment period would be like, well, everything's got to be based on reason and thought. So that would create a big gap between say like, you know, a, a slave and in a, you know, an educated person, somebody that can right. read. So, I mean, a lot of the, that's what I was trying to get at is like, what creates the alignment of these issues? Um, and it just seems like everybody, these, these modern people that think everything is going to be explained reasonably and through um, like a scientific lens. Right. Uh, and it just comes into like, and then people are getting anxious to feel this experience of God. Right. And that alone is like butting, butting heads with the culture of the day. Right. Which says, and, no, we, we've got to have a re there's no reason for this. Well, and, and inside the church too, is this utopianism. So there's always been pessimism, which is this, things aren't getting better, but there's this utopianism that like, if we really believed what we believed, and if we really put the gospel to work, and if we got to work with the gospel, our culture would be better. And so what you have in the early 1900s, in the 1800s, you had this thing called the social gospel movement, which sought to kind of... Um, bring culture back along, but it hadn't gone far enough. It hadn't gone far enough. And, and the social ills that we were trying to address through the 1800s were still happening. And so what we have is two movements really arise in the 1900s. One is the holiness movement of which Pentecostalism is born, which is if we could just get back to holiness, then everything would be better. But you also have fundamentalism, which is if we could only get back to the Bible, things would be better. And they sought to not only restore the church to its rightful place in society and in, in, in within its own self to restore the church back to its true power, which is where we get baptism by the Holy Spirit stuff, but also bring about social change. And um, I mean, it's no accident that the holiness movement is what leads to women's suffrage is what leads to, you know, even after that, the civil rights movement. And so there's these cultural elements and this is the key to church history. When you look at anything, nothing in the church, nothing in the story of God's people has ever happened in a vacuum. It's not random. Uh, it's not out of nowhere, but it's always people in partnership with God kind of responding to their circumstances, which what is what leads to this explosive growth of the Pentecostal movement that begins at Azusa street within those three years, because as we've noted, not only did they go all across the United States within those three years, they were in Canada, they were in Africa, they were in Europe, they were in Asia within just three years. And so really what happens is Azusa street redefines or reshapes 
whole cultures and whole church cultures as kind of this emphasis on baptism of the Holy Spirit and experience and empowerment kind of bleeds out throughout the globe. Um, yeah, it's, it's not an accident. It's not an accident, which always wants you to make you think. It, it should always invite us to think, how are we as the church being formed by our culture and responding to our culture? Because that's always happening. So Kyle, this is really interesting because it has, I think it brings a lot of balance back to the Bible when you were talking about like fundamentalism versus, um, what was the word that you used? Holiness. Holiness. Like, you know, when I think of holiness, we're kind of moving into this part of our culture at Regen that has, we use, we use these words up, in and out. Yeah. So, I mean, how does, how does the events of the Azusa Street mission in the, in the Azusa Street revival speak to our up, in, and out culture at Regeneration? What a super question. So, <laughs> so upwards, you know, is what makes us think of our relationship with the Father, so presence and worship, prayer. There was just a remarkable dependence on the Holy Spirit in every layer of the Azusa Street culture. They really allowed the Holy Spirit to direct their gatherings moment by moment. So unlike us, we tend to say, okay, we're going to do one song, announcements, two songs, a sermon, communion, a song, and get out of here. It was kind of up to, in their minds, it was up to God, whatever happened during that time. And so that meant those worship moments were at their best, spontaneous, and a deep sense of the presence of God, probably at their worst, a little chaotic. They really believed that it was so important to wait or tarry for the Holy Spirit. The tarry word has come from the King James Version, to tarry for the Holy Spirit to move in their midst. Um, one of his sermons, which we don't really have in full length, they would record them in snippets. Uh, one of his sermons, William Seymour's sermon says this, all we have to do is obey the first chapter of Acts and wait for the promise of the Father upon our souls. The disciples tarried until they received the mighty power of the baptism with the Holy Spirit upon their souls. Then God put the credentials in their hearts and put the ring of authority on their finger and sealed them in the forehead with the Father's name. I mean, their, their dependence on the Holy Spirit was about taking up spiritual authority. And the dependence on the Holy Spirit created a lifestyle that we would maybe call naturally supernatural, that they embraced the miraculous as a matter of course, that it's just normal. And whether that was miraculous healing or prophetic words. And so like some testimonies from Azusa street would be like a man was healed of asthma of 20 years standing. Many have been healed of heart trouble and lung trouble. Another newspaper that they would put out said a brother who had been a spiritualist medium and who was so possessed with demons that he had no rest and was on the point of committing suicide was instantly delivered of demonic power. So you have this like naturally supernatural, this dependence on spirit, on the spirit, which came from, by the way, a white hot spiritual center of a prayer culture uh, that was just huge. So in the gatherings, if you really wanted to receive prayer, if you wanted to really seek that baptism, you would go to the upper room where people would pray for you. And this is actually a really interesting story. A white pastor showed up there wanting to kind of know these things and seek them. And the biggest stumbling block for him was how present African-Americans were. 
And so he went to the upper room, but really struggled to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit because he refused to let a black man lay his hands on him to pray. Wow. So finally, though, a black man lays his hands on him. He receives the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And like publicly, he repented of racism, which is, I think, really profound. And so a ton of Bible teaching, a ton of discipleship that, I mean, what gets our attention is these public gatherings. But in the background, a background culture of Bible study and discipleship, a background culture of prayer dependence that led to this supernaturally, naturally supernatural kind of lifestyle that was just totally transformative for people. So that would be kind of the upward dimension. Yeah, I just got, as I was listening to you speak, first of all, anytime I hear from his sermon, every time I hear somebody say, all we have to do is get a little skeptical, but at the same time, it does like when you simplify something so much, it does sound really appealing to, to that, to the simplicity. Right. Plus like what he said, all we had to do is tarry or wait. Yeah. And that to all of us should seem so countercultural. Yeah. To our life, um, which may explain why this is so hard for me personally to like wrap my mind around. I think I can accept the, 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 the fact of history, right? what happened at Azusa Street Revival, I've not experienced personally what all of those people experienced or what maybe even what you've experienced in, when you, in your time in Cuba. Right. But that idea of like, all we have to do is wait. Well, when was the last time I waited? Right. Right. Terry for God, you know? And it's just like, you know, which means to slow down. And, and again, that's just so, so simply, that's just simply countercultural. And isn't that what we see in Jesus? Like what we see in Jesus is I'm going to sneak away in the early morning and go be with God. Yeah. And so it's so countercultural. And even in, in American evangelicalism today and the culture that like we kind of have to push back against at Regen all the time is let's just do another Bible study. Let's just do another service project. Let's just do, let's just do, do, do. Instead, there was actually a real emphasis, I think, in Azusa Street on being in the presence of God. Which is really cool, which led to a really healthy spiritual family. Um, I wonder know. how much time, like when, when I think of the Azusa Street Revival and I think of charismatic and Pentecostal churches, you know, I get this like happy, clappy, like, woo, like everybody yelling, like not, not quiet, but like, I feel like to tarry and to wait, and I could be totally wrong about that, but that's the picture that I get. I get, I, you know, I think of people falling down and, and stuff like that, and all of these loud noises. But then when I think about waiting and slowing down and tarrying, I get a completely different sense of like sitting there in silence and more of these like well-known spiritual disciplines. Like one of the spiritual disciplines is not gonna be fall down on the ground, it's gonna be silence and solitude. Right, And and I would say that you actually really did see both there would be services and gatherings at the Azusa Street that were like, I mean, there were noise complaints made. <laughs> Actually, there was a part of that, part of one of the books I read talked about the noise complaints and like were police involved and all that kind of stuff. But there were other services that were really quiet and contemplative and that God would move equally. And really what we tend to, we tend to divorce the contemplative and the charismatic, but really they're two sides of the same coin. Yeah. Um, and so I think you're, you're hitting on something really important, which, you know, being a charismatic church doesn't mean we have to be wild and crazy and chaotic. It can, it can still mean kind of a quiet discipline.
Hey, Remind listeners, thank you so much for being with us today. I'm really just excited about what this conversation is stirring up in us, and it's giving vocabulary to our community for what we sense God is doing. And so next week, we'll be back with more about the Azusa Street Revival. Stay tuned.